We cannot give what we do not have. If I lack love because I'm not filled up with it, I cannot give love to my parishioners. I can give them a smart word, a nice sermon, but I cannot give them the love of God in that sermon unless I am filled with love. Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin Connor, your host. I'm Abigail Visco Russert, co host and co producer. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer. This is one of our bonus episodes where we share the full interview we conducted with Professor Bo Karen Lee who teaches spiritual theology and Christian formation at Princeton Theological Seminary. Professor Lee shares insights about loving our neighbor in our current climate. She names various contemplative spiritual practices that can ground leaders in this moment and shares insights from stories of crucial turning points in the lives of people like Mother Teresa and Desmond Tutu. This interview was first featured in our episode entitled Self-Care and Sabbath which also features the insights of the Reverend Dr. Jamie Frederica Eady and rising ministry leader and spiritual director, Laura Fairchild. We hope you enjoyed this full-length interview with Professor Bo Karen Lee. My name's Bo Karen Lee, um, and I teach at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm the uh, Associate Professor of Spiritual Theology and Christian Formation, and I teach classes um, in spirituality, um, as well as classes in mission that are related to the integration of spirituality with our call in the world, Um, different kinds of mission, mission defined very broadly, those who are sent by God into the world to be the hands and feet of Christ. Um, But I focus on classes on contemplative listening and other varieties of practices that help uh, future pastors connect deeply Uh, to the well of life that comes from the God that they serve. Tell us a little bit about taking that further. Tell us a little bit more about your work in spiritual direction and self-care. Sure. So um, I did develop a series of courses in contemplative listening related specifically to the art of spiritual companioning And so these courses will help students companion others in the ministry of spiritual listening. Um, But before a seminarian or a pastor can accompany others, they need to have a very vibrant sense of being accompanied by the Spirit, being supported and sustained by the Spirit, as well as their community. And so in that particular class, we teach them listening skills among among themselves, and we bring in experienced peer group leaders to sort of model what deep listening for the spirit together might look like. Um, and so I would say all of my classes, even though they're preparing students for ministry, they are helping students connect to uh, the wellsprings of life that keep them rooted in their own belovedness, their own identity in Christ, and their own walk with the Spirit so that they don't burn out as they try to serve others. Um, So I teach a variety of classes just in spirituality, like rhythms of prayer in the Christian tradition, 
looking at Benedictine spirituality or classes on um, practicing the presence of God inspired by Brother Lawrence. How do you bring the presence of God into all of our life from doing the dishes to studying, to preaching a sermon, to visiting a parishioner at the hospital? Um, Then I teach classes in Ignatian spirituality because he's very strong in helping us honor our imaginations, our uh, our spiritual eyesight as we interact with God's love and God's word. Um, I also do teach classes in forgiveness and reconciliation, as well as some philosophy classes. Um, one is called The Face of the Other, and it helps us to confront the reality that we have a very hard time loving our neighbors when they show up with what Ivan Karamazov calls, you know, I can love humanity, but when they show up, when my neighbor shows up with their smelly, stupid face, all love is gone. Mm-hmm. And so I can love humanity as a principle, but how do I love on the ground when loving becomes so painful because my neighbors are hurtful or dismissive or um, so many things that transgress my own humanity? So how do I continue to love in the face of pain and injustice? And, and the course basically concludes with um, the importance of proper self-love and how to cultivate that in order to be very effective and free in neighbor love. And um, the only way for that cycle to continue in a free-flowing fashion is if I am continuously receiving love, then I can love myself and love my neighbor. So. That whole cycle plays out in that particular course. And um, I think it's true in ministries of spiritual direction. I can't be a kind, compassionate, empathetic presence to another if I'm not deeply grounded in being supported and loved and honored in my dignity, in my identity. So I think my classes, by and large, focus on helping students find that grounding in their in their creator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's you. Know, you gave me so many places <laughs> to follow up, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but I'm immediately struck by um, contemplative listening in this moment, and I, I'll jump to this now because I think you are headed there anyway. Because I think part of what we've what we've talked about, Professor, is the the racial awakening or awakening or reckoning or however you want to call it the the pandemics that we're in the mm-hmm. the racial pandemic the covid and mm-hmm. you just you you talked about this listening and listening when it's really hard and listening when it you know it's the neighbor with the that you you know are annoyed by or or worse you know um is denying your humanity. How do you, how do we do contemplative listening? How do we do that in this moment? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think there are many voices screaming at us, telling us who we are. Many of those voices are violent. And then there are many voices telling us who we should be. So Uh, There's pressure from so many different quarters. Uh, You are this. You need to be this. You ought to be that. You're not good enough. You need to be doing this. Even the best of Christian ministers feel so much pressure from parishioners or from fellow pastors on the kind of pastor I should be. In this particular class in contemplative listening, it's interesting because this fall, I'm going to Bridget 
hopefully uh, very specifically with our international and national moment of 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 great crisis and and ask what voices are we really listening to maybe i'm listening to my own voice my voice of anger shame disappointment betrayal having been belittled or maybe i'm uh ashamed of my privilege or maybe i'm I'm guilted into using my privilege for this or that. Like, where is the most authentic voice going to come from? And there's there's this deep, authentic voice within each of us. Howard Thurman calls it that inner island of authority where you listen deep to your own soul, deep calls to deep, and you know what your deepest self is drawing out in you. But as Howard Thurman also knew, for him that deep voice comes in silence, stillness, and solitude when we listen to the voice of another. And that's when the voice becomes so clear, the voice that tells me the beloved truth of who I am, that I am the beloved child of God. And so one image that comes to mind now is, you know, when Jesus is baptized in the river, before he begins his ministry, before he performs a single act of justice or breaking societal uh, oppressions, um, before he does any work of ministry or healing or preaching or compassion or, or, or service, he hears a voice from heaven telling him, you know, the heavens part and the voice declares over Christ, this is my beloved my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I am so confident that if we don't hear that voice over our lives on a regular basis, then we will be parasitic upon other voices to tell us who I am. Oh, I don't know my own dignity unless you honor me. I don't know my own dignity unless these people respect me. Oh, I don't know my gifts as a pastor unless my parishioners say, great sermon pastor. I don't know my value if my elder board doesn't congratulate me on this Mm -hmm. or that. And so how can I bear the grind of ministry when things are rough, when the sheep are unwieldy, if I depend on them for their voices to tell me how I'm doing or who I am? There's got to be another voice that rings clearer than all the other voices swirling through my own head. How do I distinguish God's voice? How do I distinguish the deepest voice within me telling me who I am and what I've been called to and what I've been called for? Why have I been called? Who am I and what do I have to offer? And so there are a variety of ways that we can listen for this voice of God. And so students will gravitate toward this or that path of listening. But because this is a... um, an institution that believes in the divine, what we're looking for is a very specific Mm -hmm. voice, a very specific word from a very specific person. Not just the force, not just this random, the force be with you, but a very specific voice that comes from a person who has a very distinct personality and who has very specific thoughts toward me and very specific hopes for my life, dreams and hopes for my life. Um, all beautiful ones, not pressure-filled ones. So, and, and I think many of us have heard what we imagine to be the voice of God through various religious leaders. 
And then this voice comes sometimes in a very harsh, strident, judging tone. So then the voice I imagine to be God versus the voice of love. There's a lot of layering to the voice that I think Mm -hmm. comes from God. And so I didn't mention this, but some of the classes I teach actually have to do with the transforming and the healing of the voices we hear and of our own narrative, the story I tell myself about who I am Mm -hmm. and what voices define and shape me. How do I heal my own internal narrative of my life? And how do I um, receive healing for the distorted perceptions and views that I have of who God is? Because fundamentally, is God love? Mm. And if that's not the voice I'm hearing, then there's something distorted and probably broken because of a painful experience I've had in the past. And then I tape that onto God. That's the lens with which I view God. So a lot of uh, these classes also have to do with the healing of the false voices we we allow ourselves to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it brings me to, is a great way to, to ask you about, so can you tell us, define what, what is self-care mm-hmm. and, and how is self-care then theological? Yeah. <sighs> There's that famous passage in the Gospels where Jesus is serving with the disciples. They're busy, they're tired. And he says, come away with me and rest for a while. Mm. And self-care is not a term you'll find in scripture. However, there are so many images in scripture that point to the abundance of living in Christ. And by abundance, I mean spiritual, mental, emotional, relational, communal, personal abundance. This, this, this abundance of being sated. Like my hunger, my desires are sated. So let's say I want to serve other people or feed other people. Let's say I'm a chef in the, in the kitchen and I'm cooking a meal for all these people. That's how we can imagine ministry to be. I'm providing a meal for all these people. Mm-hmm. But the chef must eat. <laughs> right. The chef must eat. And self-care is theological in that it is modeled to us in Christ himself, who frequently went away to be nourished by his own Heavenly Father, even before starting his ministry, he he would go away before he called the disciples. Why did he go away for 40 days before starting his ministry? Why did the Spirit lead him into a wilderness of intense preparation and fasting? How can that be self-care? He's preparing himself for the hard work ahead of him. And we cannot give what we do not have. Mm-hmm. If I lack love because I'm not filled up with it, I cannot give love to my parishioners. I can give them a smart word, a nice sermon, but I cannot give them the love of God in that sermon unless I am filled with love. And so I think self-care is more about just honoring the communion that God intends me to have, to fill my life with strength, with love, with the fruit of the Spirit, so that my ministry flows out of being filled rather than 
struggling and straining out of some kind of deficit. If I keep serving on a deficit, that leads to resentment, burnout, anger, Mm -hmm. and disastrous um, relational conflict and a lot Mm -hmm. of unnecessary pains. I think it's theological in that God never intended us to serve and give that which we do not have. You get that in John 15. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Abide in me. I think self-care is simply a way of honoring the invitation to abide in the love of Christ and Mm -hmm. for all of our work to come from that chief vine, Mm -hmm. my source, to be connected to my source. So if I'm not abiding, if I'm not honoring the invitation from God to commune and sit at table and feast and be fed, I am confident that our pastors will burn out. It's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're, you're making me think of um, the kind the burnout, the justice fatigue, the um, kind of one of our um, interviewees, she, she mentioned the kind of the privilege of self-care and the privilege of work to, to take care of yourself. Um, and also just the lack mm. of time to do it. So both of those kind of at the same time, yes. she yes. is a death doula. Mm. And she wow. shared with us cause she's working in ministry in Philadelphia, but also working as a hospital chaplain. And so she's, mm-hmm. when we're thinking about audience, she, she's an interviewee, but she's also your audience. Like what are the ways that, um, a, a clergy woman like that can self-preserve, can do the work yeah. of ministry and yet still honor that invitation that you're talking about to just sort of abide, be connected to the source. How do you do that? Yeah. So let me ask a follow-up question. Is the, sure. um, there are different contexts. So let's say a single mother with four children, how does she take mm-hmm. care of herself or, right. A pastor on the front lines who is, you know, constantly with with surrounded by violence, death and dying and illness. And so how do we create margin around our lives? Um, I think this is connected to Sabbath. Um, yes. Yeah. The, the huge error that I have made in the past and that I think many well-meaning religious leaders make is that we think we actually think that something depends on us. Mm. If I don't do my work, then that problem won't be fixed. If I don't do my work, then no one will take care of that. If I don't do my work, then no one will be served. And we're not allowing God to raise up someone else to do that or to do it in some other means that we might not have imagined. We think it's irresponsible and faithless to stop from our work Mm-hmm. But I think God gave us the gift of Sabbath to remind us we're not in charge. I am not, I am not the Savior. I am not the Savior. And we could know it theologically and yet existentially not buy into that. We think that faithfulness means never stopping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But faithfulness, I think, requires us to eat a proper meal. No one can fast forever. We will die if we keep fasting. And I think working without receiving 
sustenance from that divine voice, from that divine feast, working without feasting, feeding, filling, will lead to detrimental depletion. And mm-hmm. um, so let okay, so let's say I'm a, a busy mother of four. How how do I do it? In some circumstances, it is just it, it feels impossible right. to take care of myself. And I I can only give the example of Mother Teresa right now, who mm-hmm. who poured out her entire life to serve the hurting and the dying. But she forbade her sisters from going out until they had experienced the Eucharist in the morning, fed on the blood and body of Christ, and had an hour of silence and mm-hmm. solitude. Mm-hmm. Like she forbade the work until the the sister experienced that hour of silence. And even Desmond Tutu, mm-hmm. who did amazing work um, in, after, well, the Truth Reconciliation Commission um, mm-hmm. You know, they were trying to heal after apartheid and they were really torn over how do we uh, grant amnesty? Upon what conditions do we grant amnesty? And the the commission itself couldn't agree on how to grant amnesty. And there was this one newspaper article that declared, is this the end of the TRC? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the peacemaking body couldn't Mm -hmm. even find peace among themselves. Mm -hmm. So Desmond Tutu said, okay, we stop our work. We on Christmas vacation, we go to Robben Island where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned, we look at his prison site, we reflect on all that happened, but we take 24 hours of silence and nothing but listening to God. You're allowed to do nothing but listen. They walked around. My my Presbyterian uh, colleague who was a part of that commission said, as a good you know Presbyterian, mm-hmm. I was very restless with silence because I like to cram <laughs> my head with words. Right, right. And um. But, but they did what Desmond Tutu asked them to do. And after 24 hours, they came back together and Desmond Tutu just asked, so what did you hear in the silence? What did you receive? What did you hear? What did you receive? And the people shared. And then within a record amount of time, they came to a unanimous decision on how to navigate this very tricky terrain. So that's how he did that in his service. In his own personal life, there is an hour in his every day I don't know if it's from 1 to 2 p.m. I don't know how that transformed over time, but I know someone who lived with him for years. And I also um, have read about this in a book that describes Tutu's life from many personal accounts from people who knew him. And he took an hour where he refused conversations, phone calls, work, or business. And it was Mm. just for his time with God. Mm -hmm. So, yes, everyone in the hospital needs me. (laughs) <laughs> but can I take 30 minutes, 15, 45, an hour just to seize from social media, cell phone pinging and say, just going to rest in the presence of God and let God love me and let God strengthen me. And most people have trouble with that. So then what are the contemplative practices I can incorporate into my life to have that quote unquote hour of power? Right. Right. Um, and, and I mean, Desmond Tutu was so strict about that. He would not let anyone interrupt him. And that's a great example to me of how, you know, no matter how important our work feels and actually might be, can we say that actually doesn't depend fundamentally on me? 
there is a God who will take care of that, who is in charge. I am not in charge here. I do not save the universe. And, and, and it's painful because we don't want to stop because we care so deeply. We care so deeply. It's because of our love and our care that we don't stop. But God's love and care for us is even greater than our care and love for the world. And God's love and care for the world is far greater than ours. And so surely God will move even when I am still. Mm-hmm. And if I don't allow myself to be still, then I think I will trip and fall eventually and cause harm somewhere, whether to myself or to my loved ones or to my coworkers or to the ones that I serve. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you asked a great question in the email, you know, what's the difference between self-care and Sabbath? Mm-hmm. That was my, you're, you're good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Follow up. Because certainly if Desmond Tutu can have an hour of self-care or, you know, a moment yeah. in the day, we all can. But yeah, that was my mm-hmm. follow up. How, please. I, yeah, I think Sabbath is one subset of self-care. Mm-hmm. It's like a Venn diagram. There's also an, an intersection where self-care is one. Well, all of Sabbath can be self-care, but so but Sabbath can include other people care. Sabbath can include you know, all sorts of things. A lot of writers on Sabbath speak about how not only is it a time of rest, but it's a time of play, recreation, delight, marvel, you know, wondering at the beauty of creation around you, whatever causes you to wonder, to delight, to marvel, that feeds the soul. So if it's playing Scrabble with, with good friends, or if it's going kayaking on the, on the lake, what feeds our soul. And so I do think Sabbath is a subset of self-care by and large. And I think self-care can also mean allowing myself to be with friends who will care for me. There's also a difference between self-care and receiving care. Mm -hmm. This is very hard for ministry leaders to do. I can say, all right, self-care, self-care. I need to care for myself. But what does it mean to humble myself and say, oh my goodness, I need to receive some love and care from another human being. And so to, to open my heart and my, and my pain to a trusted friend or a trusted spiritual companion or a counselor or someone who's trained in helping, preferably I would also have a number of very close friends who would be able to take turns caring for one another, for, for me. Every ministry leader needs that. Um, the body of Christ. Who in the body of Christ can I go to? So self-care, I think, is distinct from receiving care. But receiving care, again, is a subset of self-care. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm very interested in, in self-care for clergy um, and, and just generally in our work and obviously for, for um, this episode. And I, I did send you the question about, um, yes. we talked about self-care, self-care being political and it feels like a place yes. to chat about it here. I, I'm yes. thinking about specifically um, Audre Lorde's quote, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is mm-hmm. self-preservation. And that is in itself an act of political warfare. Yes. Because I think we've watered down self-care so much. Like 
in the main in mainstream life we think self-care is like getting our nails done Mm. and that's the extent of it and like pat ourselves on the back we took time for ourselves and some of that's true i love getting a manicure but Mm -hmm. it's certainly not what audrey lord or you are talking about Mm -hmm. specifically and so i wonder do you think self-care is political Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely the way i honor my body's needs, my soul's needs, my emotional needs has a direct impact on how effective I am in the public arena, Mm -hmm. in the political sphere. So if I can bring the best of myself to the work of justice, I will love much more the work that I do. If I can bring the best of myself to the work of justice, then I will be more effective in the work that I am called to do. If I do not refuel, then I have less energy to share, to spare for, uh, with others. So um, I, I, I love that quote by, by Lord. And I actually found the, the paragraph within which, within which mm-hmm. it's lodged. And yes. she says, Overextending myself is not stretching myself. I had to accept how difficult it is to monitor the difference. So she's talking about recovering from cancer. And she says, necessary for me as cutting down on sugar, crucial, physically, psychically. Sometimes we think that, uh, oh, if we stretch ourselves and we serve others well, then we will necessarily overextend ourselves. But She's arguing that overextending is a recipe for disaster. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is for our own survival that we do not overextend ourselves. And if we do not survive, then we will then have nothing to offer the world anyway. So it is an act of political, quote-unquote, quote-unquote, she says, as, as, as you mentioned, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. An act of saying, my work matters so much to me that I'm going to make sure I don't die. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And the way I don't die is that I feed myself. I feed myself or I let someone else feed me. I must let another feed me from time to time. Yeah, I love I love the um the metaphor of, of feeding and being fed. And it also, you know, it makes me think of the classic like oxygen mask because you, yes. you, you're not able to do the work if you are not breathing and living and, and mm-hmm. in some ways do it well, if you're not thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this, you know, I think Audre Lorde's quote, and I'm so glad you found the, the full paragraph. Cause I also mm-hmm. read that because it, yes. it was about preservation of herself and her identity. And she, she there's another, part maybe not in the book but in something that i read where they were they, they're talking about doing this because you want to be seen and heard in a world that's hostile to who you are as a person mm. to your very being mm-hmm. and so there's something really mm-hmm. important yes, yes. yeah to take from that yeah yes mm-hmm. yes yes mm-hmm. speaking out because yeah. if you don't yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah i was i was so glad you you alerted me to that quote yeah mhm yeah. Mm-hmm. As you think about, um, and again, and when I say this moment, I'm talking about the various moments of the 
the pandemic and the, and the race reckoning. And, and as you think about pastors in this moment, um, yourself included, if, if you think about what, what or where, where is God in this moment? What are we, what are we to take of this moment? What are the, what's to be learned uh, in this moment of crisis, but also of some deep joys. You've created joys in this year. You know, we, we, I think this is an act of preservation that people are doing is doing things like community listening, spending more time with their kids, resetting their lives because you know what, we're, our lives depend on it. So what Mm -hmm. are, what are, where is God? It's a beautiful question. I think in many ways, many of us feel that God is absent or God is aloof or uncaring. Um, but the God that I've come to know mm-hmm. is one who grieves with us, who who weeps with us. There's this this great mystery. Why does God tolerate this? Why does God allow this? There's a great mystery. I will say just yesterday, a friend reminded me of the crucified God. God is hanging on a cross, mm-hmm. suffering, suffering with us, and all the pain that we experience in this age, whether it's the loss of a loved one due to COVID-19, whether it's racial violence, whether it's the pain of depression and anxiety and loneliness in this space of isolation, to think that Christ bore that pain with me. There are many different theologies of the atonement. What did Christ accomplish on the cross? But one that I've come to understand and embrace and love more deeply in recent years is the theology of solidarity, Christ standing with us in solidarity with us. And um, James Cohn writes about that in, in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, but he talks about how um, in the Black church, the theology of solidarity was so important because they needed to know in the civil rights movement and in all forms of injustice, the black church needed to know that Christ is not only not absent, mm-hmm. but Christ is suffering with us, mm-hmm. bearing that cross. It's this cosmic event that somehow demonstrates God's solidarity with us. And so I have felt God's absence numerous times. We have to go through Good Friday, Holy Saturday to ever get to Easter. But I would pray for the grace to receive that cry of dereliction, to hear it from Christ, to to have our abandonment, our pain, our sorrow shared by Christ, absorbed into Christ, shielded from our lives in a way like yes we feel the pain but christ says come to me all you who are heavy burdened and let me give you rest what does it mean you know take my yoke upon you exchange our yoke give me your heavy yoke and take my yoke of lightness what does it mean to to physically literally spiritually give my burden to the one who bears it all upon this historical cosmic cross and and 
and to know that Christ carries it. This is where I'm finding Christ these days mm-hmm. in, in the crucified God. Um, now, does resurrection come? If I'm a Christian who believes that narrative, I do believe it comes. And yet God allows Good Friday and Holy Saturday for such a long period of time. Mm-hmm. It's the mystery, the mystery, the mystery. Why, 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 oh God, have you abandoned us? Why? And then we hear Christ crying that on the cross with us. Why, oh God, have you abandoned me? Mm-hmm. And it's in that honest cry that I think we can confront God and then be found by God and weep in God's presence. Just, I think there has to be a lot of weeping, honest weeping. I, mm-hmm. things are not things are not right, Lord. I must allow myself to weep. And are you weeping with me? Are you absorbing the blows? Are you absorbing the pain? Do you know our grief? And Honestly, that is where I find God these days. Where else is God? God is still, I am reformed. I I do believe God is still sovereign. God is somehow sovereign over this. Mm -hmm. God is in it all. God is in it all somehow. Not in the sin, not in the violence, not in the injustice, but God surrounds it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I feel so deeply what you're saying about this theology of solidarity and, and just, I think sometimes I, the only thing that is holding this together is the idea that there is a Christ that suffered with us. I mean, I, I feel that so deeply in what you said, because this year has been um, so dramatic and traumatic Mm -hmm. in so many ways. Um, So I feel that theology of solidarity really very deeply. Um, Along these same lines, Professor, um, what, what, how, how have you changed in this moment? What are ways that you care for yourself? What, how are you being fed? Yes, thank you for that. I will say that many of the, theme, the things of which I speak, I, um, I've come to not only through my reading and my research, but through my own existential uh, experience of having burnt out, of having been depleted, of having um, felt reduced to, oh my gosh, I, I just can't. I can't do any of this anymore. And, and so out of knowing how burnout can happen, I've learned much, you know, I've learned so much more about God's generosity toward me. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I used to think that God was a stingy God who required all kinds of stuff from me. Right. <laughs> right. I, I really had a distorted view of this God of love. I did not understand the heart of God's love for me. And I, I thought God was a taskmaster, you know, do this, do that, serve me, serve my people, serve until you're tired. You know, in in some Christian circles, they have this little acronym joy joy equals jesus first other second you last you're last right, right. yeah yeah that's joy but i think that kind of joy leads to burnout so and i have experienced different kinds of burnout at different times where you're just so exhausted you you can't even experience sabbath because you're almost dead 
psychically dead. I can't even enjoy myself because I don't even I'm know gone. what to do. Yeah, I don't even know what to do. I, I, I'm right. too tired. I'm too tired to even rest. Right, exactly. Yeah, I get I'm it. So I have discovered various gifts. One gift I call widening the margin. I used to cram my schedule with just like five, 10 minutes between meetings. Mm -hmm. Well, what would it look like to put 15 minutes in there and not spend time on email, but take a five minute walk, take deep breaths. Mm-hmm. So I and then not only that, but like weekends. What does it mean to actually take a Sabbath? And during times of crisis, I have allowed myself the gift of a normal work week, which is a lot of people work Monday through Friday and they don't work on Saturday and Sunday. Saturday is for house chores, grocery shopping, cleaning. Sunday is for Sabbath. And I used to only have one day of Sabbath. And that's when I did the cleaning, the chores. And, and that wasn't restful for me. At all. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. So I've allowed myself during times of crisis, the luxury of what I like to call widening the margin up until the point of double Sabbath. Mm. And I'm like, Saturday and Sunday, I declare Sabbath. I'm not going to open work email on Saturday and Sunday. And on some weekends, I don't even open my personal email. I'm like, I can't even deal with personal email. I have to be out in nature. People have different ways of recharging. For me, if I'm out on a kayak in the in the lake or out hammocking in the woods, hammocking for me has become a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And the more I listen to God, the more I hear God's invitation, come away with me and rest in that hammock. The hammock is so significant to me because it's the one place where I'm physically held up, no effort. All I can do is relax and let something else hold me up. And so I bought one of these portable hammocks. They're only $30, made out of nylon. You You just have to find two trees. I go deep into the woods, look for two trees and hang this thing up. And I look up at the sky and and the, and the, and the trees and, and the trees talk to me. (laughs) They tell me of, of, they tell me the love story of who I am in God. And they, they give me hope. They give me nourishment. And and often they give me a place to cry. They give me a place Mm -hmm. to weep and lament. If I don't honor the lament in me, then I will hide or suppress that and that will turn into depression mm-hmm. I think many of us are struggling with depression and anxiety and, and if I don't have a place to take that off my life and, and let that be absorbed by by the Christ who holds it all up then I will be very very sad indeed yeah. so those are some of the practices and how have I changed during this season so much stress during this season, so much stress. So I've allowed myself also um, some forms of not only weekly recreation, but like intermittent recreation throughout the week. And I also do try to take a daily Sabbath. So I like the practice of a weekly Sabbath of 24 hours, Mm -hmm. but I like the practice of a daily Sabbath of even one hour. There's no reason why I can't build that into my life. The only thing keeping me from that is my own false notion of Mm self-importance. We're busy. 
Uh-huh. That you're so that busy. Yep. I'm that important that, that I'm needed everywhere. Therefore, therefore I'm busy. Like what is the value of busyness? Very little, very little value in busyness. Mm-hmm. Busyness is not a virtue in the gospels. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of my uh, pastors used to say, you know, Jesus didn't rush around. He, he, he allowed himself to be interrupted. You, you don't see Jesus rushing around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, those are beautiful practices. I'm I'm totally taking widening the margin. Yes. Because I think in this Zoom world we're yes. like, you know, we're leaving five, maybe a five minute buffer, maybe. Oh. Or you just like going, turning it on, running <sighs> to the bathroom, coming back. I mean, it's no. like we're in a Zoom culture. So I'm taking that yeah. with me with yeah. me today. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, um, one last thing too. Yeah. Uh, I have learned to make requests. I have been mm-hmm. making requests of my Zoom partners to say, my eyes are hurting. Do you mind if I take the video off and go walking while I talk with you? Yes. So yes. many of my Zoom calls, they stay on the screen, but I take my screen off and I just go walking as I join the call. And they have allowed that. They've honored that. And and it's about building healthy margin, healthy boundaries so that I'm not overrun. I think it's yeah. it's great advice. It's practical because we're all doing it and we need to find yes. ways to, to be mentally healthy and physically healthy while we while we enter into this kind of new phase. Um, yes. um I have one last question for you. Sure. Um and, and it's kind of, you've, you've covered so many, we, we have a little chat offline, like me and Garrett, just uh, something, things go like awry and mm-hmm. like, she's like doing every question on her own. I don't think you needed me. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're fabulous. Uh. I guess my, my question, and it's a parting question um, about any advice you have for faith leaders, for your colleagues, for your friends and colleagues in ministry um, about self-care and about preserving oneself in, in, a, in a very broad sense of, of what ministry is and looks like? We don't know where we're headed after. What, what happens post-COVID? What, what would that look like? I don't mm-hmm. know yet. But what advice would you give to faith leaders? I think one immediately comes to mind just an exhortation that dear faith leader (laughs) (laughs) love it god cares for you far more than you care for yourself please please receive god's care for you please allow yourself to be loved by god and if you were to hear the voice of god what would god say and and if we were to listen to that still small voice you know in john 10 the gospel writer says, my sheep know my voice. They can distinguish it from the other voices. You know, what voice is telling you that you can't stop? Right. What, is it your mother? Is it your pastor from 10 years ago? Like what voice, what voice is telling you that you can't stop? Is it some internal shame or guilt voice? What voice is it? And if I knew God's passionate care for me, I really think God would weep over how much um, I'm caring, caring and carrying. I'm caring deeply and I'm carrying over much. And so I think I would say, please let yourself be loved by your creator who loves you and cares for you far more than you do yourself. And let yourself take a break. Nothing depends on you. 
I, I when I did centering prayer two three years ago in the moment of uh, sh- uh, shouldering the crises of loved ones around me, my mantra was, "Nothing depends on me." And of course, I meant there nothing fundamentally depends on me. But to say nothing depends on me, it meant I could hold it loosely. And yes, I'll do my job. Yes, I'll fight for my loved ones. Yes, I'll do the work. But to do it out of this radical knowing that God holds it rather than thinking it depends on me, it, 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 it turned the striving into trusting. And it also enabled me to take Sabbath, proper Sabbath. Mm-hmm. In this time of crisis, when we're forced to stop because if we don't, we will die. I think we can then take these practices into more normal life where there's less crisis, but that will allow me to function at a much healthier level. So what I learn in crisis can be taken with me post-crisis. And so... I, I would just say God is so much more generous toward you, dear ministry leader, than you are toward yourself. Please receive the generosity of God toward you. God is not demanding. God is not judging. God is not requiring. God would love you to feast at table with Christ and to receive the most fulfilling of fare. I would almost beg the ministry leader, please, please come away and rest a while. Christ passionately cares for you and is aching for you to find your rest. That would be my plea, my plea. Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. You can learn more about Princeton Theological Seminary at ptsem.edu. Thank you for joining us.